You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these friends who are here today. Um, Lord, we are in such unusual times, and it's very hard to be able to interpret one's times in the middle of it. Um, but I do f- think we all feel something of the stress of our moment nationally and globally. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us clear minds, that you'll help us to be able to pray and think. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be humble in the face of complex forces. I pray, O oh Lord, that you will do your work in people's lives to draw them to the Savior. So, Father, I ask even in this class, uh, sitting as we will for these next few weeks in the writings, that, Lord, you will help us and shape us uh, by your grace in, in accord with this particular section of the Bible that um, is so old and ancient, and yet it seems so pressing and relevant to our, our moment in time. And so I pray for me, Lord, that you'll help me as I teach, and for those who are here to learn that by the effective power of your Spirit, we would, um, we would be open to what it is you have to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have Bibles or anything and you want to turn, are they all around? Oh, look at that. We saved all kinds of seats for you. Hey! Um, so the plan, I don't even know how long this class is. I, I need to look. Is it that long? No. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Um, I, I think it's something like maybe five weeks. I'm not, I'm not positive. But I, I want to take some time thinking through, and I'll be honest with you, I'm double dipping here. I'm writing on this area now on a project that I'm doing. So this is kind of forcing me to think through. You all are going to help me if I can put it in those terms. Um, and the writings, just so, to kind of get somewhat technical with you for this, a second, are, are what, what's the third part of the Old Testament in its tripartite structure. Now, I say this stuff around here a lot, so forgive me for kind of double dipping. Um, but the, the way in which our English Bibles are structured, and there's a lot of value to the way our English Bibles are structured, and I would go and tell you there's not a publisher in the world who's going to fiddle with well, I shouldn't say that's overstated, but no one's going to really mess with our, the English orderings of our Bible. And what I mean by that is, think about how the Old Testament is structured in, in your English Bibles. We, we begin with the law, and that's, that's a stable feature that both the synagogue and the church share in common. So you have you know, Genesis to Deuteronomy is the established sort of base of the Old Testament in such a way, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, but in such a way that the, the term law or Torah can kind of be a metonymy or an associative reading of the whole. So you can refer to the law, and it actually be in, in reference in some sense to the whole of the Old Testament. One could also even say, you see this a lot in the language of Jesus, the law and the prophets. They, they were slow to believe all that was written about me in the law and the prophets. I mean, Jesus will say this as a shorthand for the sacred authority of the scriptures of Israel. But we know, because of the writings, that there are more in the Old Testament than just the Law and the Prophets. So we'll, I'm planting seeds here, but we'll get back to it. But our English Bibles, Genesis to Deuteronomy, that's, that's the Law. And then from there, we go to the historical books. 
um, Joshua, Judges, uh, Ruth. I'm trying to remember from my, uh, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, then Ezra, then Nehemiah, and then Esther. So in a very sort of nice collection, the way in which our English Bibles are ordered, we have the history books all brought together. And what, what do the history books offer us? They offer us from the conquest of the land in Joshua all the way to the post-exilic period with Esther in the Persi- under the Persian Empire of, of Darius and then Artaxerxes and others. Um, that was the means by which God saved and preserved his people. So you've got a long, I mean, think of, that's a long history. When you think about the beginning of the conquest itself, um, 12th century BC, something like that, all the way into the post-exilic period, which it would probably go into the early um, early 5th and even maybe even to the 4th century BC. So there's a lot of time that's covered. So our English Bibles do that sort of nicely for us. And then from there, we move into the poetry and wisdom books of the Bible. So you go Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So you've got that nice little collection there of what you might consider poetry slash wisdom, moving from Job all the way to Song of Solomon. Then you flip the page, and now we're in the prophets. So you go Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, we get Lamentation slides in there, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the way to Malachi. So that's how our English Bibles are ordered. There's a beautiful logic to it, in a way. Um, Malachi, as a final book of the Old Testament, opens up rather naturally, I think. Um, into into Matthew, so there's something to be gained, I think, from that juxtaposition. You're, you're, you're expecting one who will come like a refiner's fire, the revisiting of Elijah back to his people, which paves the way for John the Baptist who's coming. So there's nice a nice chain link that you have between Malachi leading as it does into into Matthew. So I don't I, I, I try to say this to my students regularly. Because I'm not trying to take your English Bibles from you when I offer you a different ordering. Um, there's something valuable to this, to the logic of the way in which our English Bibles are ordered, and there's something I think actually theologically interesting about what our English Bibles do. Here's a fascinating kind of historical point, though. We don't really know what the basis is of our English ordering. <laughs> when you, it's one of those things where you start to kind of push back through, like the, the textual history, to the King James version, and then back to the Bishop's Bible, and, and then like over to the German versions, and then back to the, you're like. All of a sudden, the, the, the threads kind of go nowhere. And it's, it's as if our Old Testament and the English order is like the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's like the Septuagint, but not quite like it either. Um, so there's actually a little bit of a historical mystery about how our English Bibles and the ordering that we have in the Old Testament become, became sedimented in the way in which it is because there are no ancient versions that attest to it in the way in which we have it now. I just think that's, that's just an interesting piece of, of history. The Jewish Bible, the, it, the, the Bible of the synagogue, um, if I can just put it this way, just to kind of make it more provocative, Jesus' Bible, right, one of the, of the first century world, was ordered in, in, a, in a way that's rather different, actually, than what you have in your English Bibles. And this matters. And, and I'll tell you, the project that I'm working on right now is an, is an introduction, a theological introduction to the Old Testament for undergraduates. Um, I don't teach undergraduates. I don't talk like undergraduates. If, if, if I could go back in time, I would never have done this project, but I'm too deep into it now. Um, it's, it's, it's a, I'm just saying it's a harder thing to write to 18-year-olds than I realized it would be. Um, with, with that said, though, I, I had to wrestle with the publisher because I said, listen, I, I know they know their English Bibles and the way in which it's ordered, but I, I really think it can help these students to think about the Old Testament in a different way if we can order it according to its tripartite 
Hebrew canon structure. So we had to go back and forth. They finally yielded on that. Um, and why do I think it's important? I think it's important for a couple of reasons. Let me explain it to you first, and then I'll tell you why it's important. Number one, now this is how the Hebrew Bible is structured. Tripartite, if you're walking through Barnes & Noble and you pass the... Which I haven't been in forever, but Naomi and I took a little date up to the summit. We have boring lives. Um, uh, before Christmas, to get a few things for the kids. And we, I, I don't think I'd been in Barnes & Noble in over a year. Uh, walked in... And I just forgot about the Christian inspiration section. I mean, it, I mean it, it's, it makes this look like chump change in here. I mean, it's rows and rows. And then, the, and I love it, it makes you chuckle. There's one small little shelf of Judaica, you know, like Jewish studies. So if you go to that one small shelf of Judaica, you see a Jewish publication society Bible. Um, you'll often see the acronym on there, Tanakh, T-N-K, T-A-N-A-K, Tanakh. Law, T. The, the N of Tanakh is the Nevi'im, the prophets, and then the K is the Ketuvim, the writings. So you have the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's your tripartite structure. That's the, that's the, fun, that's the language that Jesus is using in the Gospels regularly. The law and the prophets. And then this third section, the writings. And one of the reasons why I, I made this argument with the publisher to, to present the book in this way, and why I think it's helpful in this setting as well, is um, we, we sometimes, I think, need to be defamiliarized. That's a term I'm borrowing from a certain literary critical movement, but defamiliarized from our normal modes of reading. We, in other words, we all find ourselves in intellectual and thoughtful ruts. And, and reading the Bible according to a different structure can actually open up avenues of insight that weren't necessarily there before. So the law, the prophets, and the writings. So, so this is how the Hebrew Bible is ordered. Again, like the English Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So there's your five books. That's the instruction of Moses. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you flip the page from the end of Deuteronomy to the beginning of Joshua, you can sense that those who are actually writing the Bible understood the distinction between those books of Moses and what we're doing now. Because think about how Moses is described in the book of Deuteronomy. He's a friend of God. He ministered to God face to face. He was a servant of the Lord. And then you flip the page to Joshua 1, and how is Joshua defined? A servant of Moses. He's a servant of Moses' law, of Moses' teaching. So you get a sense in a way that Joshua's authority is a derivative authority that descends from Moses' authority, which was in unique relationship to the Lord. All to say, Moses is special. So you have the law there, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then you have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Those four books there form what's, what are known as the former prophets. So you have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and then after Kings, you turn to the prophets themselves, the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Um, or the minor prophets, however you would want to describe them, from Hosea all the way to Malachi. So think about that. That's, that's the basic form of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament canon. Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, the prophets, all the way unto Malachi, establishing for us, and I think this is really important to come to terms with, establishing for us what I think I might want to call the fundamental grammar and logic of the Old Testament. This is the theological um, inheritance that provides the thought pattern, the speech pattern, the worshiping pattern, the living pattern 
of Old Testament piety and religion. It's the law and the prophets. And that's the language that you have, I think, Jesus used somewhat regularly, and Paul as well. So then, what is this last group here, the writings? I mean, there's, there's a sense in which the writings are kind of, you can almost understand them as, and all those other books, right? All those other books that aren't the law and the prophets, but that are still deemed authoritative in, in Israel's life. Um, so what are the books that are in the writings? Well, mo- most orderings begin with the Psalms. So you go Psalms, and then you go Proverbs, and then you go uh, Job, and then you move, and this is, again, we'll, we'll talk about this over the next few weeks, to the, what's called the five small scrolls, the megalote, which are uh, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, and so- Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther. Then Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. And then the last book, and this is interesting, but the last book is Chronicles. So Chronicles in the Hebrew canon is the final book. And I should just go and tell you that too has an interesting logic to it as we flip to the end of the book of Chronicles into Matthew chapter 1. Because how does Chronicles end? It ends leaving us anticipating God's promise to bring a future Davidic king. So the promise of a king that seems to have, a Davidic king that seems to have come unraveled in the Babylonian exile. How can we really believe in the promise that God made to David back in 2 Samuel 7 about a Davidic heir on the throne forever when Nebuchadnezzar just came through and destroyed everything that we hold dear and every symbolic institution that we have that holds our society together? Temple's gone, palace is gone, walls are gone. How can we believe in a Davidic king? Chronicles is addressing that particular problem, creating a sense of anticipation about that future coming king. All right. So that's how the, the Old Testament is ordered. I find I mean I, I get giddy about it actually, because I find it endlessly fascinating to think about the ways in which, and, and maybe this is a term you can you can muse on, associative reading patterns in the Bible. How we read certain biblical books in association with other biblical books, that is, and I'm going to be hyperbolic here, but teaching is supposed to be hyperbolic, endlessly interesting. Because there are so many new things that can be seen, interesting insights that can be seen from reading, for example, um, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth together. And what happens when I read Joshua, Judges, and Ruth as it opens up to Samuel together? the way in which it is in our English Bibles. That's fascinating. But I'm going to tell you what else is interesting. What happens when I read Proverbs 31, the faithful woman, right, the virtuous woman, the chayil isha, that's the, the, uh, the wealthy, virtuous, wise woman. How do I read that in light of the next book in the Hebrew canon order of Ruth, where Ruth is described as a virtuous woman? And that that's the shocker. No Moabitess needs to be described as... Proverbs 31, you know, now in flesh for us in this story of Ruth, who ends up becoming the great-grandmother of King David. It's like, that's a, that's a stunner. And then what's the significance of reading Song of Solomon in light of the relationship between Ruth and Boaz? So, I'm just saying, there are all kinds of interesting points of entry that one might have to see biblical books in different ways, in different vantage points, because of reading them in association with other books within the canon of the Old Testament. Now, couple other things about the writings. I'm just throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall today. A couple other things about the writings. This is, this is another feature of our Bibles that I deeply appreciate. And if we want to bat this around, I'd be happy to, because this is, this is, we're in a living room. So if you want to interrupt me, please do so. This is a feature of the Bible, I was reflecting on this, um, that we see 
patterned in the writings, but really not just in the writings, almost across the whole of the canon. And it's this. Our experiences, our ethical decision-making, um, our struggles with what it means to live in this world, all the things that we might put under the umbrella of real life, what it means to live on the ground. It's one of the reasons I so love our Bibles. Our Bibles do not allow us to abstract ourselves into the clouds of thought and just kind of stay there. The Bible forces us to put our feet on the ground and live real life, in the words of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. So the Bible looks, takes a long, especially the writings, a long and hard look at real life lived in this world with all of the challenges that it brings to us. But here's the feature that I, I find so important um, and actually find so life-giving. The Bible roots all of that reality in the priority of God's revealed self and the priority of God's own being, of God's own speech pattern, and who we are in God's plan for the world and God's plans with His kingdom. In other words, our identity in Christ, if I can use Christian ter terminology, our identity of Christ, on, in Christ is prior it's fundamental. It establishes and provides for us the entry point on all of the difficult things that we have to face within this life. And I actually think that our, the, the, the church train can get off the tracks very quickly when those get reversed. When all of a sudden it's now my experience or the challenges themselves that become the driver in the driver's seat, rather than the reality that's dealt with and understood and engaged but engage from the standpoint of the priority of God's revelation. Um, so, for example, I mean, can I just, I'm, I'm going to try to prove it to you here a little bit. Uh, the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is, this is God's heart for a morally ordered world, um, for His people. And how does God begin the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20? With the preamble. He doesn't just give it to them out of the sky. No other gods before me. Um, remember the Sabbath. He, doesn't, he, he reminds them before he begins the commandments, you were enslaved in Egypt and I have redeemed you. You are my people. So he reminds them fundamentally about their identity in him and the priority of his salvation in their lives that's going to shape now what is the frame within which they now view these ten words or these ten commandments that God is about to give them. Now, Deuteronomy 6 is another classic example of this. Here is, here is uh, Moses um, giving the law a second time. told you all my, my favorite Gerald Bray story, haven't I? I've got some doozies. Um, have, have I told you my Gerald Bray story about what he said to Kevin Van Hooser? Anyway, I was at a big, big theological meeting um, in Boston or somewhere. And uh, Kevin Van Hooser, who's a pretty big-name evangelical theologian, had just edited this huge dictionary out of Baker Press called the Theological Dictionary, um, the Dictionary of Theological Interpretation or something like that. They had all these reviewers come up and begin to review the book. 150, 200 people in the audience. I mean, this is kind of a big deal for these kind of events. And, um, and each reviewer, as it kind of went on, you could tell that they were finding significant problems with the volume. And they were substantial. It wasn't just, you know, I don't, I don't like what you wrote, or I would have written this differently. Those are all, you know, kind of, no one takes those kind of reviews seriously. These are substantial criticism. And you can tell as the reviewers kind of went on, 
um, that you know the editor of the volume, his shoulders are getting heavier and heavier. So during the Q and A, our own Gerald Bray, I'll just I'll never forget this. He, he raised his hand and he, he looked and he said, "Kevin, I wouldn't be discouraged. Even Moses had to go through a second edition." Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so here, here, De- Deuteronomy is the second edition, right? This is, this is a rehearsal of the law bef- on the plains of Moab before they go back in. So here you have in Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6, the rehearsal of the law. And then Moses raises this fascinating question. He says, when your children ask you, what does all of this mean? What's the significance of all of these things? You tell them, and here's the answer, we were enslaved in Egypt. We were lost and destitute. And God came and rescued us and redeemed us and made us His own people. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the logic of the Ten Commandments, which are in effect God's claim on His people to represent that relationship to the world, to be a display people to the world. The foundation of that relationship is, you were lost and I saved you. That's your identity. That's what shapes your understanding of your experience and your reception of the law in this moment. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, another great example of this. You know, Micah chapter 6, verse 8 is, a, I think, a bumper sticker verse that we see on you know, cars all around. He has shown you, O man, what is good. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. I mean, great, great ethical instructions for Christians to think through even to this day. And yet the first few verses of Micah chapter 6 are a long rehearsal of the people that God had redeemed them and made Him His own. In other words, the announcement of the gospel, of the good news, shapes for them their reception and understanding of God's instruction to them in the law. Can I go one more on the end? Then I'm I'm overkill here, but one more. Uh, the, The whole book of Romans, the way in which Paul thinks... I mean, Paul's logic in Romans 1 through 11 is to give you, in kind of overwhelming fire hydrant like terms, the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He does that all through Romans 1 through 11. And then he moves after that to Romans 12, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, I beseech you in the, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. So after all that has been spoken, then he moves to, and this is then because of that, those prior truths you're to. So that's how I understand the writings as well. The writings, this third part of the canon, are what does life look like on the ground in light of the priority and the stability of the Law and the Prophets? We have the Law and the Prophets, the truth that God is instructing us in His will and His ways, the truth that God promises His kingdom reign on earth with His people and the prophets, those truths that He's given to us, that we hold everything on. This shapes the whole, our whole understanding of reality and the world. How do those truths and the law and the prophets work themselves out in the reality of our lives when, and here's I think one of the key features of what you have to face in the writings, when what we believe and what we are experiencing do not line up. Because that's, I think, the challenge of Christian faith at, at, at its, I think, its most crucial juncture. What do we do when what I believe to be true, because of what God has revealed, does not conform or does not cohere with what I'm experiencing or I'm seeing right now? What do I do? And I love that because I think those are the kind of challenges that so many of us face in our Christian lives together. I think we know those, especially as we age some. And I think, and I feel this as a parent, I, these are the kind of challenges our kids face. These are the kind of challenges that our kids face when all of a sudden they begin to say, okay, I know mom and dad that you've said, and the church has said this, this, and this. 
But my experience of those things in this culture is this, this, and this. How do I navigate that? I think these are huge issues that face our young people today. And, um, and, and it's, to me at least, it's fascinating that the scriptures themselves anticipate that very real human condition and challenge about what do we do with what we believe when it doesn't cohere um, with, um, with what we're experiencing. Okay, now let me stop for a second. Because you'll have to keep me honest in time. Um, you want to ask any questions about that before I, I plow on a little bit more? Anything? Because I want to look a little bit at the Psalms today. Bueller? Bueller? Anybody? Okay. Um, so with that said, right, the, the writings are life on the ground in light of the authority of the law and the prophets. What I'd like to do, and, and, and I was going to just, I, I wrote all this out, maybe over, overkill. What? So you're saying when the canon was done, we don't have any records as to the ordering? We have a lot of records to the ordering, actually. I mean, there are significant manuscripts, but there's no, there's no ancient manuscripts that order the, the Old Testament canon like our English Bibles do. That's 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 the anomaly. That that and I think I I think that's true. And I was like the way in which our English Bibles came to be ordered. Um, there's there's not any attestation of that in any of the ancient manuscripts or or or, or codices would be the larger term. But there but there are attestations of what we have within, for example, the the Hebrew text that Jews recognize as authority, the, the authoritative of the Masoretic text. Yeah, Victor. Would a German Bible be? It could be. I mean, and again, the German Bible and the English Bible aren't quite lined up either, but there's probably some link to that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a funny thing, actually. Latin Bible? Yeah. Um, the, um, the, the Vulgate and the, and the sort of Latin traditions of Jerome and others may, may be... I mean, in other words, our English Bibles look more like the Septuagint and the Vulgate tradition than anything else. But it's not quite like what we have, and part of that is because you know a lot of those apocryphal books are put in uh, to the to the Septuagint and Latin tradition in ways um, that aren't recognized within you know our with at least within the Western tradition. Yeah. So can I tell you about real quick some of these books? In the, we'll talk about the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job bring to us wisdom with its promises and its challenge. The book of Ruth, again, this is life on the ground, right? The book of Ruth, what does it mean to hope in the midst of deep loss? Lamentations, as which follows up with Ruth, leans into that particular dynamic as well. Is there hope in the midst of overwhelming loss? Then you have a book like Esther, which is a complicated book. What's the problem with Esther in the Old Testament? It, no, God. no God, right? So what's Esther doing? Well, that's not great either. Yeah, that's not great either. I said it last year in our like small group, and I came away from that just thinking, this wasn't in the veggie tales. <laughs> <laughs> they leave, they leave some of that out. Yeah, it's funny. My my, my wife and I were just talking um, the other day about just the way in which the liturgical calendar orders the season of Christmas. You know, you have December twenty fifth, Christmas Day, but isn't it December twenty sixth is then like the the memorial of Saint Stephen's martyrdom? And then two days later, it's the reflection on the death of all the holy innocents. I mean, it's like, you're, here we are in the 12th, this is supposed to be happy, and we're talking about some pretty heavy stuff here within the tradition, so I take that. Um, Esther is an interesting book because, again, and that's, you know, I get why the rabbis wrestled over this one. That, that's not a clean book. I mean, they're, they're, it's a mess. 
um, as is God's providence. See, I think that's part of the part of the beauty of the book. Part of the beauty of the book of Esther is God's providence works itself out in the in the messiness of human affairs, and that can't always be sorted out for us in a neat and clean and tight way. I mean. I'm just bracing myself for the day when one of my children says, so what exactly did Ahasuerus and Esther do that night when she tried out to be the queen? Well, I don't know. They played Yahtzee. I'm sure they, you know, so they played Yahtzee. Um, so you have the book of Esther. You have Song of Solomon, which is a reflection on God's love and human love all wrapped up in one. The book of Daniel, again, works with Israel's hope for a future king. Ezra and Nehemiah show God's word and God's people with a renewed covenant. And the book of Chronicles, then, is the will. Um, will there be a king forever in, in the promises that God made to David? Now, I should say, these books do so much more. And we'll talk about that in due course over, over our time together. They do a lot more than this. Um, but that's what these books, again, if you frame them in their and I'll use this heavy term, canonical context. These books in the writings are forcing us to think about hard questions in light of the complexity of what it means to live life under the sun together. And the whole of the writing starts in the book of Psalms. And I want to just do this quickly with you, and then, and then I'll, we'll come back next week. It starts in Psalms. I love it that in most of these ancient manuscript orderings, not all, but in most of these orderings, the book of Psalms comes first in the writings. Isn't that interesting? I mean, what, what are if, if the writings are life on the ground in light of the authority of the law and the prophets, well, what are the Psalms? The Psalms are all of life lived before God in prayer. From the good to the bad and the ugly, all of life lived before God in prayer. And think about Psalms 1 and 2. Because Psalms 1 and 2, again, just there's so much thought and skill that's gone into crafting our Old Testaments. Psalms 1 and 2 are unique, pretty unique, I should say, in the Psalter, in that they don't come to us in the form of prayer or direct address. You begin Psalm 3 and 4 and 5. All of them have in there, on some level or another, O Lord, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, O Lord. Oh, you get this vocative or direct address sense all through Psalms 3 and following. But Psalms 1 and 2 aren't like that. Psalms 1 and 2 are a kind of deep breath before one enters into the book of Psalms of life lived before God, explaining something, if I, if I can use you know overly sidewalkish language, explaining to us the rules of the game. We're about to show you all the twists and turns of life that you will experience. It's waiting on you. I often think of the Psalms from a metaphoric standpoint like like coats in a closet. Um, You you might not be in a a moment of lamentation right now, but if you live long enough, you probably will. And guess what? There's a Psalm coat waiting for you to put on for for that moment. And the the moment of rejoicing and thanksgiving because you were in dire straits and God saved you from that situation. He rescued you from that situation. There's a coat in the coat rack waiting for you to put on when when that moment in your life comes to you. Um, So I I tend to think of the Psalms like clothing that needs to be worn in particular moments waiting for us. Um, But before you get into all of that, this is the Psalm 1 and 2 is saying, but before you go to the coat rack, we need to have a big conversation about what are the basic ground rules of the game. What does it mean on its fundamental level? Or, or here's another metaphor. What's the fertile soil out of which a beautiful yet complex life lived before God needs for that to take fruit and to grow? 
And that's Psalms 1 and 2. Because Psalm 1 says, right out of the gate, and think about this in light of the law and the prophets, right? Psalm 1 says, the person that's going to be like a tree that's planted by a river whose fruit will always emerge is the one who meditates day and night on God's law and, and, or, or on God's instruction. In other words, the fertile soil for a life lived before God is a, is a heart and a mind that's given in its entirety to, think about this, the priority of God's revelation. That is a game changer. The priority of God's revelation is the necessary soil for a life, a fruitful life lived before God. Now, I mean, and I, day and night, meditating, um, and I should go ahead and say there will be psalms that you read in the book of Psalms, like Psalm 73, that in effect say to God, can you imagine this in the Bible? I tried Psalm 1, did all that stuff that you said would happen, and that, that's not working out for me. Um, so again, even there, you'll see the Bible live up to its own challenges in light of its promises and, and really future realities. But the fertile soil, the, the getting out of the gate of a life lived before God on the ground in light of the priorities of His revelation is a loving desire to think and reflect on God's law, His instruction as the lens by which I view all of reality. Um, I'll stop with this and let you all go. I, I've stumbled a across a couple of books, um, which is often how it happens. I mean, I, I, I always feel like I'm reading books two years before I should have. I mean, after I should have. Um, do, do any of you know the work of the class? He's a classic Thomist, Aristotelian kind of philosopher, theologian, Joseph Pieper. Tucker, have you read some Pieper stuff? Yeah. Um, so I, I stumbled across Happiness and Contemplation, one of his early books. Um, I read that this summer. And then just recently uh, read his book, um, Leisure, The Basis of Culture, which is just, there's something about, and I'm really, I, you know, this is not my intellectual or theological tradition, the whole Aristotelian, Thomas, Catholic tradition, but I love reading these guys. Um, Sir Talange is another one who wrote a book on the intellectual life that's all based around what it means to think as a Christian. I, I like reading these people. But all of this to say, his book on contemplation and on leisure makes an argument that really what it means for us to be human at our very core is not so much our work as it is the way in which our work serves our leisure. Now, they have to be careful here because he doesn't mean leisure here in the sense of turning to the back nine, you know, or your feet nestled in the sand, what we might think of as leisure. He's thinking of it in the classic sense of a reflective life lived in school, right? So the servile stuff that we have to do serves the ability for us to live lives that reflect on the essence of things. And I, I, I think about this more than I should because I know that I'm guilty. I'm not putting this on anybody. I'm guilty, and I see, I see it happening with my kids, and, I, and it's like a runaway train. I don't know what to do about it. So I'm not offering any, you know, don't take this as, you know, me lobbing grenades anywhere. Um, but I do think we've, we've lost something of the ability, I feel this acutely, to be contemplative, to create space for reflection, um, to, to think and to pray, um, to be able to stand before, I think about this especially in light of all the circumstances of this week, to be able to look at complex things and, and pull the reins back a little bit before I rush to a certain narrative or a certain conclusion or, or whatever, 
and ask God in His mercy to help me think about this in light of His revelation, in light of the ultimate essence of things in Him. That's in effect what I think Psalm 1 is saying. The person who's blessed, the person who's happy, is the person that, by God's grace, creates space in their lives. And I don't know how to do that, really, with the amount of you know, stimulants that we have. It's very, very challenging. Um, but to create space for real reflection, for thought, about what's ultimate and real. Because I think if we don't do that, we will become hostages of the moment. We'll, we'll be hostage to the moment itself. And isn't it interesting, I think, that the writings here, these books, this so old, ancient stuff, is calling us right out of the gate with Psalm 1. The first few words of the writings are calling us to take a deep breath, to reflect, to pray, to think about life being ordered in light of God's ultimate kingdom and His future purposes. Because the people who think in that way are like trees that are planted by a river and their fruit never falls away because their hope is in something that's not ephemeral like the current political moment, but their hope is something that's in deeply eternal, rich, and, and, and uh, guided by the future. Anyway, let me let you go. I think you've got to go to church. Lord Jesus, thank you for, for your word. It's just it's endlessly rich, and we, we need wisdom. We lack the resources, Lord, in so many ways to, to even think in macro terms about our world and our country. Um, but Lord, even just to think about how we interact with our neighbors and our friends and our family. We need wisdom. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us the gift of contemplative modes of being, that we can reflect, Lord, on what's ultimate and true and real and what's really beautiful. We need to see beauty today, O Lord. Show us yourself, we pray. And let the writings, as they force us to look into the mirror of life, let the writings shape us in these ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at Advent